is how it would go on my first Sunday back. Losing my voice. The headset mic doesn't work, so I'm going to hit this thing with my hand 40 times. That's why we read 2 Corinthians 12, right? Because I don't get to complain about it, I guess, is the deal. Well, I'm taking this obnoxious thing off my head. I was going to hang there. I got a whole situation going on with this mic. We're taking it off. We're taking it off, guys. I can't. Welcome back. Glad to be back. Glad to be back. And uh, I know you've missed the smooth production that I put on each Sunday. My attention to detail. My desire to cultivate the perfect experience for all of us. All right, we're good. I don't have like a Fonzie thing going on. There was a Sunday here in this church that I took my guitar off. My collar flipped up. And not a one of you told me about it the whole time. And I'm Arthur Fonzarelli up here with my... All right. And should we just back up and do it all over again? Yeah, at this point. Paul here talks about his thorn in the flesh. And, and you know, scholars don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was that Paul's talking about. Some say it was his eyesight. There's some indication that Paul had bad eyesight. Some say it was a physical malady or, or a mental thing that he struggled with. Some said it was demonic. Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. Demonic harassment. Whatever it was, we do know this. It wasn't good. And Paul hated it. And I don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, but I can tell you what mine are. At least some of them. Uh, Obsessive compulsive disorder, it turns out. (laughs) Clinical depression. I didn't have a name for these things, but they have been with me almost as long as I can remember. They have escalated to a significant degree over the past couple years, and I responded to them sinfully. I responded to them by isolating myself. I responded to them by not being honest about how I was feeling. I responded to them by not running to Christ and not running to the support that was all around me, but instead trying to be strong and tough it out because I had to be the strong one. I couldn't be the struggling one. The result was that they dominated and consumed me to the point that poor Tom Johns gets a phone call from me at 8 o'clock on a Friday night that says, hey, I'm in Cleveland. I'm not going to be there Sunday. I felt burnt out, I felt discouraged, I felt alone, at times I felt suicidal. And to those who don't struggle with these things, with feelings of extreme despair or suicidal ideations or all-consuming compulsive thoughts, it can seem very confusing that a Christian might feel that way, much more that a pastor would feel that way because we're supposed to know better. It's one of the things I've, I've started meeting with a wonderful, wonderful Christian therapist, and one of the things I say to him all the time is, I know better than this. I know better than to feel this way. It it might be shocking to some of you to hear this now. But in all of it, I want to say this with the Apostle Paul, the grace of God really is sufficient. The grace of God really is 
sufficient. Mental illness is a highly stigmatized topic in the church. I can remember growing up in charismatic and Pentecostal circles that it was just a demon. I mean, that's all it is. But even in the past few weeks, I've, I've heard numerous conversations from the camp I'm in, the Reformed Baptist camp, or the, or the Reformed camp, talking about how depression and anxiety are always sinful. That's a big topic. The amazing thing is, those kind of statements are always coming from people who don't struggle with mental illness of any kind. And they just stand in their bully pulpit and point their finger at anyone who might and say, oh, you sinner. Have more faith. The truth is, anxiety and depression are in the world because of sin. Just like the flu is. Just like losing your voice is. Just like cancer is. Just like broken bones are. Just like labor pains are. These things are in the world because of sin. They're in the world because of the fall. They're in the the world because this is a Genesis 3 world that we live in, but they are not always the result of personal sin. It's just simply not true. How we respond to them may well be sinful. And I will tell you that the way I responded to them was. It's been, in one sense, faithless. My whole life, masking it, trying to hide it. But these things in and of themselves are not sinful. We, we all face trials of occasional anxiety, of occasional depressed feelings. But for those who suffer them more acutely, th- this kind of glib, dismissive finger pointing, well, you're just sinning, you need to have more faith, you should pray more. You should read more scripture. You know who prays and reads a lot of scripture? Your pastor. Well, it was not a magic button. All it does is it adds to the shame. All it does is it adds to the hopelessness. All it does is add to the despair and the self-loathing. And the people who struggle with these things have plenty of it to go around. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't need me to tell you this. Charles Spurgeon who suffered so greatly from anxiety and depression, most believe that's why he died at the age that he died. He said this, The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can only bear a certain number of wounds and no more. But the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. The, The reality is about one in seven people deal with anxiety and depression. Some think the number's more like one in five. That's not too shocking if you look at the world around. Like, look at the world around you and go, yeah, I get that. Anxiety and depression make sense in this world in which we live for the unbeliever. Why would they have anything but anxiety and depression as they look at the world around them? But the numbers aren't too different in the church. It's just that we don't talk about it. It's still stigmatized in the church, and so we don't talk about it. But thank God his word has a lot to say about it. His word has much to say to us. The Psalms are full of examples 
for us of how we can respond in the face of suffering. Whether it be suffering from anxiety or depression or loss or betrayal or as we see in David the psalmist that we'll be looking at this morning in case you need this in the face of Philistines. I don't think you'll run into Philistines. But if you do, God's provided for you. Turn with me to Psalm 56. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Psalm 56. We're going to look together at David in a moment of great crisis and fear. And see what he did with it. And what David does with this is what I have found is my only hope. Is to do what he did. And we see, we see this kind of encouragement all over Scripture. We're just going to be drawing from Psalm 56 in order to, to see it. Hear the word of the Lord now from Psalm 56 to the choir master. According to the dove on the far off Tenebris, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they've waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you've delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. This is David in the midst of great turmoil as he writes. His life is being threatened. He is in real distress. And although we don't face his exact circumstances, his words resonate with us, don't they? Every believer experiences some of these very same feelings. I I know as I read this psalm, as I read this psalm, I, I hear his words and I go, yeah, I know what that feels like. All day long my attacker oppresses me. And surrounds me. It's just not people outside. It's just me. Attacking and oppressing myself. I know how we feel. I know these words resonate. Every believer experiences these feelings sometimes. And for some they experience them regularly. And they experience them deeply. In a way that nearly totally consumes their thoughts. And in all these cases. God has given us these words for our good. That's why God has given us 
this prayer of David, this psalm of David. Notice the superscription here. When you see these superscriptions in the psalms, those are original to the text. That's not an addition like the, the chapter and verse numbers. A victim of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. David tells us when he's writing this and what it is that's going on. We, we read all about this in 1 Samuel 21. I'm going to just summarize it for the sake of time instead of having us turn and, and read there since I had my little five-minute clown show with the microphone earlier. D- David is all alone. He doesn't have an army yet. He's not surrounded by mighty men. It's just him, and he is running from his life, from, for, for his life from King Saul. King Saul wants to kill him, Because David is to be the next king, and the current king's not real thrilled about that. In fear, David runs to the one place he thinks Saul will never look for him. He runs to Gath, the hometown of Goliath, the Philistine. This this giant that David had killed just a few years earlier. And to make matters worse, David didn't have a weapon. So he went to procure a weapon, and the only one he could get was the sword of Goliath. So here's David walking into the town of the Philistines, into Gath, dragging this massive sword behind him that just so happens to be the sword he used to lop off the head of the hometown hero, and into town he comes. The enemy of the Philistines. And so they want to kill him. Philistines want to kill him. And so David thinks the only way he can save his own life is to act like he's gone completely insane, to go completely crazy. And this is the account we read of David letting the spit run down his beard and just acting like he's out of his mind, and it works. And the king says, I don't want anything to do with him. And David escapes. But it's in the midst of this that David writes this psalm. James Montgomery Boyce says, David's flight to the city of Gath, the fact that he went there in the first place, is proof of his despair. David's in a place of of despair. He's spiraling. He's flying blind. He's in survival mode. He's just reacting. He's being dominated by his fear and by his despair, and he is headed for disaster. But God rescues David. God teaches David. God shows David to trust in him. And in his grace, he gives us these words so that we might trust in him, so so that we might see God for who he is. So that we can learn as David learned. Look at verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. He is completely overwhelmed. Totally outnumbered. He is surrounded by his enemies. He doesn't know if he's going to make it out alive. He's afraid, and so he preaches the truth to himself. In the midst of his fear, he preaches the truth to himself. Look at verse 3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? It's as if David's looking at his circumstance. He's, He's terrified for his life, running from Saul, who's got all the power. He runs to Gath, of all places. And now it's like he's out of the frying pan into the fire. And in that despair and that terror and that that all-consuming fright and anxiety, he reminds himself, I must trust in God. 
It's as if he's saying it through clenched teeth right here in verse 3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, I trust. There's something more than what I can see. I know it's true. I don't think David feels it right here. And he's just preaching to himself what he knows to be true over and against what he feels to be true. And he's teaching us how we ought to respond when we feel overwhelmed. When we have anxiety, when we have fear, when we have worry, when we have depression or hopelessness or whatever it is. Because the truth is, faith doesn't simply make our troubles go away. Just knowing the truth doesn't automatically make us feel perfect. It doesn't make everything go away. Knowing the truth and trusting in it is not a magic button that makes everything better. Faith doesn't mean the absence of struggle. It doesn't mean the absence of fear. Uh, All you have to do is look at countless examples in Scripture and then look at all the, the, the heroes of the faith throughout the generations and see how many of them struggled with depression and anxiety. Faith doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have fear or depression or anxiety, but it does tell us how we should respond to them. It does inform our response. Charles Spurgeon said, David was no braggart. He does not claim never to be afraid. Evidently, it's possible for fear and faith to occupy the mind at the same time. But blessed is the fear that drives us to faith and trust. David admits his fear. And he, and he preaches the truth to himself. Look, Notice the last line of verse 4. What can flesh do to me? What what can mere man, as David is is preaching the truth, trying trying to, to bring the truth to bear on what he's seeing with his eyes and feeling in his heart, he says, what can mere flesh do to me anyway? And what's the answer to that question? Some things. You can do some things. The, the, the question anxiety asks is, what if? For those that struggle with anxiety, you know this. It's, it's what if one thing after another. What if this happens? Well, then this might happen. And then this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. It's just an endless loop of that question. And the truth is, sometimes the bad things we fear actually happen. We do live in a fallen, broken world. And so when David says, what can mere flesh do to me? The answer is, in this life, a lot. A lot. Bad things do happen. People can do things to you. Those things we fear can happen to us. Bad people can do things to hurt us. David spends the next two verses telling us exactly what what flesh can do. Look at verse 5. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. So the answer is not, if you have enough faith, exactly, nobody can do anything. You're bulletproof. Nobody can touch you. Everything's going to go your way. You're going to be prosperous and rich and healthy, loved by everyone. No, that's not true. 
They work against David, he says. They misinterpret him. They twist his words. They want him dead. He says, all their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir others up to hate him too. They lie in wait for him, he says. They're lurking. Trying to intimidate. Trying to attack at every opportunity. They, this word lurk means to pant after. The way a dog that's about to attack is, is ready. Is panting after its prey. They're always there. They've consumed his life. They've consumed his thoughts. Do you know what that's like? It might not be Philistines for you. It's probably not Philistines for you. Nor wicked Israelite kings. You know what it's like to feel consumed with thoughts that won't go away? Attacking you undermining you, deceiving you. You can't sleep, can't stop thinking, filled with anxiety. What do we do in those times? What do do we do in these moments? David gives us some guidance here. With the stakes at their very highest, David gives us such faithful guidance What do we do? We lift our eyes. We lift our eyes. We lift our eyes to the creator, to the savior, to the sustainer. We have to speak truth to ourselves, particularly to to speak truth to those lies that we so easily believe. What does David do? He reminds himself of the power of the word of God, first of all. Notice how he finds comfort and confidence in the word of God. Verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Verse 10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. Keep in mind here, as David rejoices in the word of God, he doesn't have the New Testament. He doesn't even have all of the Old Testament. In fact, that in that moment, all he probably had memorized was the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament. Maybe some of Joshua and Judges. Perhaps a random psalm of Moses. When he's rejoicing and praising in the Word of God, it's books like Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that he's drawing strength from. The ones we read in our Bible reading plans and go, boy, these are rough however these God breathed books were sufficient for him the word of God was sufficient for him they caused him to understand God's sovereign power they revealed to him who God was in his sovereign might in his grace in his justice they revealed to him the utter holiness of of God. They they opened his eyes to see God's faithful covenantal love for his own people and he was sustained by that. And friends, we have so much more than David had. We have so much more. Entrust yourself to the living sufficient word of God. 
There's nothing more constant. There's nothing more encouraging. There's nothing more life-giving than the very words of God given to you. In any circumstance you are going through, in any season of your life, in every situation, we need more of the Word of God, not less. It's appropriate for any trial that we face. And friends, it's up to the job. There's life here. There's hope here. There's strength here. Supernatural life, hope, strength, peace, joy, encouragement. What does the Word of God reveal to us about God? It reveals to us God's sovereignty, His absolute authority and rule and might. And it also reveals His nearness. He's for us. And He's with us. Look at what He says in verse 7. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. God is the one who will judge. Who's going to deal with wicked King Saul? Who's going to deal with the Philistines? Well, it's not going to be the lone, the lone ranger David. No, God must act. God must judge. And those who oppose God's people, David understands, have set themselves up in opposition against God himself. And so David knows it doesn't depend on him. It doesn't ultimately depend on his might or his wisdom, which are just not enough in the face of what he's facing. It's God who must act. You know how that feels? To be facing something and you just know you're not enough for it. Of the world and all its self-help and, and the churches that just want to get as big a crowd as possible so they have self-help gurus come and teach you instead of preachers. They will tell you, you are a special little butterfly. You are more than enough. You are just the most wonderful thing. No, the truth is, you're not. And you know it. You know what it feels like to feel like, I'm not enough for this. I don't have enough strength for this. I'm not smart enough to figure this out. I'm not able to fix this in my own. It's one of the gifts of our trials is to cause us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to fix them on God who reigns. That's what David does here. Much of anxiety comes down to thinking it's all on us. It's all about, I can tell you, many of my struggles come down feeling, to feeling like I got to do it. Those of you that know me well in the church know that if anything, I'm going to take on too many tasks for myself and not tell other people and not ask for help because I just feel like I can't ask other people to do it. I got to do it. It's, it's just a, this, this anxiety, this, this obsession, the things I got to come through. The truth is, it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. 
We aren't able to solve it. All we can do on our end is be faithful. That's it. And the good news is, the gospel tells us that that's enough. Look at verse 8, though. I, I love this verse. You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This is such deeply personal language. God is not far off. We have not been left alone in whatever it is we are facing. He is closely, intimately involved with us at all times in our lives. This first phrase, you've kept count of my tossings. I've loved that picture of God keeping track of how many times I toss and turn over a sleepless night because I seem to have a lot of those. I just love that picture of God attentively watching over me. He knows every time I toss and turn in the night. The the actual word, though, is wanderings. The, The Hebrew word comes from a verb that refers to the wandering trail of someone experiencing rejection and grief. He's kept track of me in my wanderings. I have not been alone I've not wandered into territory that's outside of his care. Even as we sang this morning in that great hymn, Though sorrow need or death be mine, I'm not forsaken. My Father's care is around me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. So what David is is saying of God here in the midst of his trial. That last phrase, are they not in your book? Again, deeply personal language. God is not far off. He keeps a close watch. He doesn't miss a thing. There was a time years ago when, when Andrea got really into scrapbooking and she would lovingly, painstakingly document the pictures and stories of our young families in her books. And David says, God is meticulous in his attention to us. He knows everything about us. He cares about us so deeply. More deeply than a mother cultivating the memories of her precious child. Look at that middle phrase in verse 8. You put my tears in your bottle. In the ancient days, even up through the Roman Empire, in fact, they still are around today, People kept these delicate glass containers to catch and store tears. And they would cry and they would press the container up to their their cheek and and the tear would be collected in this bottle. It it was common for those who were in mourning to catch their tears in bottles and, and then place them as a memorial on the grave of their loved one. Just a token of their grief. It was common for the wives of Roman soldiers to collect their tears while their husband was away, while he was deployed. Then he would come back and they would present him with their filled bottles of tears of how much they had missed him as a a token and memento of their love. There are even accounts of marital problems that resulted from husbands coming back to empty tear bottles. (laughs) Wondering exactly what that meant about the state of their marriage. Tear bottles, though, were companions to people in grief. They they would take solace in the fact that their tears weren't lost. That none of their tears were wasted. None of their tears were meaningless. But notice the amazing thing David says. God is the one holding the bottle up to your cheek. He's the one 
collecting your tears. He's the one that they're precious to. He's the one that they mean something to. Christian, he has a bottle just for your tears. Of course, this is a metaphor David's using. But what a metaphor. What a statement. God has, Christian, never missed a single tear that you have shed. Tears of sorrow. Tears of repentance. Tears of anguish. Tears of confusion. Tears of hurt. Tears of depression. Tears of rejected. Tears of anxiety or fear. He is deeply, intimately, personally invested in your troubles. God the Father Almighty, the sovereign ruler of all the universe, is your Father. He loves you. He cares for you. And what's the promised future of our tears? This isn't the only statement about our tears, the the tears of the believer in Scripture. That in this life they are precious to God. And none of them are wasted or lost. No, the promise of heaven in, in Revelation chapter 21 is God himself will then wipe away every tear from our eyes. Tears of sorrow and suffering and loss and pain will all be gone forever. And friend, in the meantime, God is with you. He's with us. And our tears matter to him. Our hurts matter to him. Spurgeon says this, Personally, I also bear witness that it has been to me in seasons of great pain, superlatively comforting, to know that in every pang which racks his people, the Lord Jesus has a fellow feeling. We're not alone, for one like unto the Son of Man walks in the furnace with us. Believer, you never have And you never will cry alone. Grieve alone. Mourn alone. God is with you. And he cares for you. This reality, as David thinks on it, moves him to praise in the midst of his fiery trial. In the midst of his ordeal. In the midst of his circumstances have not changed. He's still sitting in this spot. This spot where where he just said through clenched teeth, I must trust in God. I must not fear man. I must look to God. He has now lifted his eyes from himself and he has placed them on God. And what is it that he has come to know is true as he looks not at himself and his circumstances but looks to God? What he's come to know is the sovereign God of the universe is for me. He's for me. Look at verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back on the day that I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise in the Lord, whose word I praise in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What an incredible statement of faith. God is for me. Friends, we have better information than David had when he came to that conclusion. We we know this. Not only is God for me, God is working all things for my good. 
For those who are in Christ, God is working all things for your good, for your future, for your redemption, for your joy. That is a promise that we have that David wasn't even aware of. This this truth that the sovereign God is for him produces joy and praise in the heart of the psalmist. And twice he says it's the word of God that's done this. Verse 10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. Verse 11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can my circumstances do to me? This is what this truth does for us. This time there's no list of things that man can do to him, like there is at the beginning. His perspective has changed. His eyes are fixed on God, on eternity. Anxiety wants to ask, what if, what if, what if? And when we fix our eyes on God and we say, but God, and we look to him, the truth is, what could any of this do to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the understanding that Paul came to, the Apostle Paul, in the face of his many trials. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, we read this, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's perspective causes him to see anything that happens to us as a light and momentary affliction. That includes the messenger of Satan he was pleading with God to free him from. It includes people trying to kill him repeatedly. It includes shipwrecks and snake bites and all that the Apostle Paul endured. Mockery and derision and rejection and opposition. And Paul says all of it is light momentary affliction. It's just preparing me for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so I'm going to look at things unseen rather than the things that are seen. It's the, it's the reason why in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians that we read at the beginning of this message that Paul can say as it regards this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan that he hates, whatever it is, it's a bad thing. Can we agree? A messenger of Satan? That's not a like, mm, could go either way. why he says this, and I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So the power of Christ may rest on me for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christian, God is with you. God knows. God cares. And he is sovereignly working all things for your good. His grace really is sufficient. In all things. At all times. R.C. Sproul powerfully explained how God's sovereignty is the basis for all of our hope. He said, if there is one maverick molecule in all the universe, just one molecule running loose outside the scope 
of God's sovereign ordination, then there's not the slightest confidence you can have that any of the promises that God has ever made in the future will come to pass. He says, if there's anything out there, even one molecule that's outside of God's sovereign rule, then what hope do we have? What hope do we have that that's not going to wreck everything? Friends, here's the glorious news and the point that Sproul was making. God is sovereign. He does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants. He never needs to ask permission. He never needs to see how this maverick molecule is going to act and then respond in kind. No, no. God is in control of everything. Do you believe this? Because hope lives here. Hope is found here. This is the ground of our hope, in fact. The sovereignty of God. It's the foundation of peace. It's where our assurance lies. Spurgeon said it's the soft pillow we can lay down our head on at night. It's where comfort is found. And so David says in verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. You've delivered my soul from death. David's ordeal is not over. His circumstances haven't changed yet. He's just written a song. But his eyes are fixed on God, and so he is confident that God's promises are true. So true, he can talk about them in the past tense. You've delivered me. His circumstances hasn't changed, but he knows that God sees. He knows that God hears. That God knows, and that God cares. And that God's grace will be sufficient, just as he said it would be. Again, we have so much more to go on than David had. He had parts of the Old Testament and a promise from God that he would be king. We have something far, far better than David had. We have unshakable evidence that God is for us. That his grace really is sufficient for us. That he really is working all things for our good. That, that our soul ultimately will be delivered from death. That ultimately he will keep our feet from falling and cause us to walk forever in, the presence, in his presence in the light of life. That evidence is the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we remind ourselves of every week as we come to this table. It it is this unshakable evidence in the face of whatever it is that we're walking through in our lives. As we come to this table, we remind ourselves we have sure promises that God is for us. And that God will accomplish all of His good purposes in us and through us and in this creation. That God, who is sovereign, cares. Can I just put in a plug here? Don't skip communion. I know this church used to take it once a year and then twice a year and then four times a year. And for some of you, even though we've been having it weekly for a year now, it still feels weird. Traditionally, the Church of Jesus Christ has practiced church discipline by forbidding people to come to the table. I just urge you not to put yourself under voluntary self-church discipline. There's nothing. This is good. 
Why would we not want to partake in this? Again, nobody's going to stand up here with a clipboard and keep track if you didn't come up. This is just someone who loves you, hasn't seen you for a couple months, saying this would be a great time to start to worship the Lord in the way he's ordained with his people. What a joy. I have been looking for, I've taken communion in almost all the churches we've visited have weekly communion while we've been gone. And it's just, it's wonderful. It's glorious. I've got to take it with my family, which I never get to do. It is not the same. I can't wait to come to this table with you, friends. We have unshakable evidence that God is for us and that he will accomplish every good purposes, that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. And it is because we can look to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can know. But these promises are only for those who are in Christ, and it's why this table is only for those who are in Christ. If you are outside of Christ this morning, you need to hear me. You have much reason to fear. Your anxiety is warranted. Your depression is warranted. If you don't feel those things, if you do not tremble, it is because of the hardness of your heart that is bound up in sin. But Christ calls you right now to come to him, to come and have life, to come and have peace, to come and have joy, to come and find rest in him. Yes, we live in a fallen world where we will battle trials and adversities and yes, for some depression and anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. But in Christ we have life and we have hope and we have peace. And we have joy and we have unshakable promises as Jesus says this in Matthew 11. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the glorious truth of your word. Lord, even the promises in your word that our deepest struggles, our greatest trials, even in those you are working for our good, causing us, Lord, to lift our eyes to you, causing us to trust in you, to hope in you, to run to you. I pray, God, by your spirit, you would enable us to do that. We thank you for your grace that makes that possible. We rejoice in you. We glory in you and we hope in you. In Jesus' name.